You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. As we remain standing, let us pray together. Lord God, send your Holy Spirit and speak to us from your word that we might be built up, strengthened, encouraged, and sent out with joy to serve you and the world you have made. For the honor and glory of your name. Amen. Please be seated. That's a real joy to be back at the Cathedral of the Advent. 17 years ago, my wife Alicia and I spent a memorable summer here living at Advent House. I had the great fortune of serving as a seminary intern while Alicia was warmly welcomed into a summer job uh, working for Don Menendez. We loved our time in Birmingham and I'm so pleased to be back and to be part of this august tradition I don't know what it means that it took 17 years to get invited back. Um, I'm just going to take, take it as a sign of the wisdom of the community in some way. Uh, my reading this afternoon comes from Luke 16, starting at verse 1. Jesus said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and chargers were brought to him. This man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be my manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do, since my master's taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do, so that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So, summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. This is the word of the Lord. So various words have been used to describe this parable. Cryptic and bewildering among the most popular. Uh, Is Jesus advocating fraud? Is this the ultimate expression of the ends justifying the means? Does something get badly lost in translation? Of course, the answer to each of these questions is no. The parable is strange, but it's not inexplicable. And taking time to grasp Jesus' intent, it's well worth the effort. Because here, in this parable, he provides us with an eternal perspective on wealth and an incredible lesson on stewardship. Let's just review. A A wealthy landowner has an incompetent manager that he needs to fire. He's not dishonest as far as we know. He's just wasteful. But the wealthy landowner makes a crucial mistake when firing him. Instead of having him bring the account books to their meeting, he tells him to turn them in later. Now in an instant, he's provided his manager with motive means and opportunity to defraud him, which is precisely what happens next. Unwilling to do manual labor and too proud to beg, The manager concocts a plan to ingratiate himself to his employer's biggest debtors. So moving quickly, he meets with the first, and he slashes his debt from 100 measures of oil to 50. 
that reduction, it's, it's equivalent to about 450 gallons. That's the annual yield of 75 olive trees. And it's worth almost two years of wages for an average worker. Moving to the next debtor, the dishonest manager slashes his debt from 100 measures of wheat to 80. This reduction is more than 100 bushels, and it was also worth roughly two years' average annual wages. Now, these are large amounts of goods, representing a great deal of money, indicating that the landowner almost certainly runs a large business. Because the manager still has the books, which signify his authority as a licensed agent, he has the ability to change the accounts and drastically alter the indebtedness of these two men. And by doing so, this is the genius of it, he puts them deeply in his personal debt, buying himself a few good friends for the rough season ahead. Now this man, who is clearly incompetent as a manager, shows extraordinary audacity in saving his own hide. He's been dishonest, but extremely effective. Returning the books to his former boss, we're told that the master commended him for his shrewdness. Now, the picture in my mind of that meeting uh, could probably be set in southern Italy. I'm thinking mob boss. Uh, I I picture this hard-nosed businessman, the wealthy landowner, whose own dealings have quite possibly been a little shady. He's sitting across from his disgraced former employee with a look of bemused pride. He's been beaten at his own game, outwitted and outmaneuvered. And so he commends the man for his shrewdness and tells him to scram, explaining that if he ever sees him again, there will be hell to pay. Now, it's a little bit of embellishment, but I don't think it could be too far off from that moment. So the parable ends there. And it must have left the disciples just scratching their heads in wonder. And and I'm not sure Jesus' comments that followed helped all that much. So Jesus says in verses 8 and 9, For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Now what started out as just a strange story now gets seriously confusing. What in the world does Jesus mean? Well, in order to figure that out, we need to remember something important about parables. Parables are not all metaphors in which every action and character carries symbolic meaning. Some are example stories or illustrations that Jesus uses to signify just one thing or to make a point by comparison. This parable is not a metaphor in which the dishonest manager stands for us, the master stands for God, the debt stands for our sin, and the final scene models forgiveness. It just doesn't make any sense that way. This is actually, I think, quite a simple story with a single provocative point. The story illustrates shrewdness in the use of worldly wealth for worldly ends, which Jesus then uses to provoke his his disciples to see how much more shrewd they should be in using worldly wealth for kingdom ends. So we see this in verse 8, where Jesus contrasts the sons of this world with the sons of light. 
worldly non-believers, he's saying, they're more creative and audacious than believers when it comes to how they use their money. The implication is, look, if an idiot like this can be as shrewd as that for the sake of short-term gain, how much more shrewd should you all be when eternity is at stake? This gets unpacked in verse 9, which is tricky to say the least. Jesus says, I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. Now, that single sentence raises at least four questions. The first is, what does Jesus mean by unrighteous wealth? It sounds like he might be saying, go out there and make as much money as you can. It doesn't matter how. Be dishonest if you have to, but then use it for good. But this would be in stark contrast to all of his other teaching on truth, on honesty and integrity. Jesus isn't referring to how money is made here, but to what it so often leads to, unrighteousness. Unrighteous wealth means the riches of this world which tend to corrupt. Second, what does he mean by make friends? This does not mean pay, uh, buy influence or pay bribes. It means be a friend, care for others, tend to the needs of those around you. It's the equivalent, I think, of love your neighbor. Third, what does Jesus mean by when it fails? He's referring to the fact that worldly wealth will never deliver on its promises. It will not bring you happiness. It will not save you from disaster. It cannot secure your eternal well-being because you can't take it with you to the grave. Well, finally, what does he mean by they may receive you into eternal dwellings? It may mean that those friends who, whom you care for in the name of Christ will greet you in heaven because your love led them to faith and thence into the kingdom. Or they could actually be a way of referring to God himself so that the verse reads, so that God will receive you into eternal dwellings. It's not clear to me which is the best interpretation, but either way, the end result is the same. Joyful reception into the eternal presence of God. So you put all those pieces together and Jesus is saying something like this to his disciples in verse nine. He's saying, look, here's what I want you to do. Be shrewd with the resources you have, your money and material possessions, which otherwise are likely to lead you astray. Use them as a tool for reaching people and drawing them into the kingdom of God. Everything you see here, it's temporary. But every person you encounter is an eternal being. Use your worldly wealth to make an eternal impact because when all this is gone, that is what will matter. Now this is not an invitation to a kind of Christianity where the ends justify the means, where we manipulate, lie, or steal in order to win a culture war or protect ourselves from our enemies. This is an invitation to something much greater and I think far more exciting it's an invitation to be shrewd for the kingdom of God. It's an invitation to be as audacious and creative as you can possibly be when it comes to investing the limited resources you have in things of eternal value. Jesus is setting us, he's setting his disciples loose to use the natural abilities and resources he has so generously given us to do great things in his kingdom.
Now, I don't have to tell you that Monday is April 15th. Most of us think of paying our taxes as a necessary, however painful, component of our citizenship. However, we make it our goal not to pay a single cent more than we absolutely must. Some of us go to great lengths to figure out how to avoid paying taxes. We hire CPAs to research loopholes. We strategically time our charitable giving. We buy, sell, and invest in tax-conscious ways. In essence, we are incredibly shrewd when it comes to protecting our assets from the government. Now, if we're this shrewd when it comes to avoiding taxes, how much more shrewd should we be when it comes to investing our worldly goods, and things of eternal value. But what does it look like, practically speaking? Luke actually gives us a great example in the second volume of his history in the New Testament. So in Acts chapter 4, we meet Barnabas. Barnabas is a new convert to Christianity who longs to help other Christians who are in urgent need. He doesn't have enough liquidity, though, to contribute at the level that he wants. So he takes a fixed asset, a field, and he sells it and then quietly gives the proceeds to the apostles for them to distribute. By passing on the money to the apostles, he ensures that it will be equitably and strategically shared by those who know the situation better than he does. And he also resists the temptation to draw attention to his generosity by giving the money away himself. Now, it doesn't sound all that creative, but it is shrewd, and it's thoughtful, and it's very effective. And if we're honest, he's more creative than most of us. When we think about giving, most of us don't have the courage to consider our fixed assets as possible sources of income to be sold and the funds then distributed. Let me give you another example of incredible shrewdness for the sake of a greater good. Uh, In the early 1980s, a resort opened on the banks of the Red Sea in Sudan. It was a five-star oasis that boasted access to an astonishing array of coral reef diving. This exclusive property, it had been developed by a small group of European investors, and it soon became a favorite destination for adventurous vacationers who wanted something different, exotic, and high-end. Now, what no one knew was that the entire resort was a front for an undercover humanitarian operation by the Israeli Mossad. They were using the resort as a base from which they they engineered the transfer of 18,000 Ethiopian Jews out of refugee camps in Sudan into permanent homes in Israel. And the resort, by the way, was profitable, generating enough income to cover all their costs and to help fund the humanitarian mission. Now, the point is simple. When we truly believe in something, we are capable of extraordinary creativity and incredible boldness in the allocation of our resources. Through this parable, Jesus makes clear that there's no greater reality than the kingdom of God 
and no more urgent need than living out the truths of the kingdom and how we use our resources. We must wake up to reality, just like the manager in the parable, and become shrewd in investing kingdom resources. Now the question that that this parable forces us to ask is this, am I being shrewd? with God's resources? Am I handling the resources that have been entrusted to me in a way that's shaped by the reality of the kingdom of God? Well, in verses 10 to 13, which follow the conclusion of the parable, Jesus continues to reflect on wealth. And he does so by identifying the principles behind this provocative story. Principles that will enable his disciples to follow through in the practical outworking of his brazen challenge. This is what he says, One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you've not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you've not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. There's a lot to consider here, more than I can possibly cover, but there are two principles in particular that I want to highlight as we seek to respond to Jesus' admonition to be the most creative and audacious kingdom investors we can. And the first is this, remember remember who is Lord comes out most clearly in verse 13, the final saying, but the point's implicit in all of the others. If Jesus is Lord, if he's the sovereign king of all creation and the new creation that will stretch into eternity, then we need to trust him. We need to obey him. We need to understand his priorities and live by them. We also need to acknowledge that all we have belongs to him. We can't claim ownership of any worldly wealth. It's all been entrusted to us, given to us to steward shrewdly by the king of all creation. Second principle is this. Put wealth in its place. Jesus calls it unrighteous wealth because of what it tends to do to us. It invites us to trust it, depend on it, and hunger for more of it. It encourages us to rely on our wits instead of God's grace. It divides our hearts and then devours them. But if we put wealth in its place, remembering that it's a tool, then the potential for eternal impact is incredible. So we need to ask ourselves this. Are we being shrewd with God's resources? Are we being as creative, wise, and audacious in putting God's money to work as we are in avoiding our taxes? And let me finally encourage you to dream. Dream of that five-star Red Sea oasis. Imagine the impact we could have as Christ's church if we wake up fully to the kingdom reality and get creative with the resources God has given us. Let's be shrewd and pursue his kingdom together. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.